0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute. Fetzer supports a movement
1: of organizations that are applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with public interest technologist LaTanya Sweeney. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hi, LaTanya. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm so glad you're here. it's wonderful to be here and have the opportunity to talk with you. Oh, I've really been looking forward to it. Um, I mean, do you have any questions for me before we start? Anything at all? No, I'm just excited to uh, have a conversation with you. Okay. Well, Zach, okay, I got my thumbs up. Um, So one of the things that I'm—one of the things I'm always interested in is the—where the seeds of the passions and the questions that drive someone root— you know, in, in a in a person's earliest life, and so I kind of want to circle around that as we begin. Um, I know you grew up in Nashville. Um, were you born in Nashville? I was born in Nashville uh, okay. in 1959. So you have to go back okay. in time. <laughs> yeah, and and then so I've read. You know, I've been reading other interviews you've done, and um, uh, you know. The uh, ubiquitous YouTube videos <laughs> of our time, um, and so I've I've heard you saying that you know even as a as a young. Girl, you, you loved mathematics. You knew at some point you wanted to be a computer scientist. Is that
0: right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And which was really <laughs> odd because no one I knew in my neighborhood wanted to do math. <laughs> you know, people, kids were dreaming of being policemen and firemen and so forth. But uh, I was the only one who just had this crazy passion for math.
1: But it's also so interesting to me that, um, that you were thinking about computer science early because it was really the stuff of science fiction, in, <laughs> right? I mean, in the 60s when I was alive too. I mean, I'm e- I'm even curious about, you know, what objects would have come to mind to the young LaTanya if you said the word technology. I mean—
0: well, you know, I didn't have a particular way before I knew a thing called a computer or what a computer was about. There was this idea of building a learning machine, a machine that could learn and think uh, and actually be a part of my daily life. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that also predisposed me when I first did encounter in high school uh, a computer science or, uh, course or computer programming course, to be more exact. Yeah. Uh, and it was to really be transformative in my life.
1: Mm. And you know, I feel like um, a lot of what we're going to talk about um, is this this thread that runs through this insistence that that you bring to your life and to your work about pursuing um, the practical and the moral good that is possible in our lives with technology, um, even as you have wide open eyes and uh, are applying a fierce intelligence to. Uh, attending to what what goes wrong and what can go wrong, and so I'm also just really curious about if you think about how this moral compass was planted in you. I mean, was there um, in that in that background of your childhood a kind of moral or spiritual or religious um, formation that, however you would de- however you would define that now?
0: Yeah, you know, I also think it was drawn to. It may have been part of what drew me to math in the first place. I was raised mm. by my great grandparents. They were born in the 1899 and 1900. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and I was, of course, the only person I've ever known who was raised by their great-grandparents. Yeah. And it was all—everyone else in my neighborhood had a mother, a father, and siblings. And, and here I was, uh, just so—it un- was just such an unusual arrangement at the time. And, and it just seemed like everything in my life was messy like that. And I really liked the certainty of math, the idea, at least back then, in that level of mathematics, there was a right answer. <laughs> and, and I think it really uh, added brought certainty to my life, which seemed really kind of uncertain mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and kind of nipples. I think that's part of what drew me to math. And the other piece, of course, is that was a tremendous arc of history that my great-grandparents were able sure. to share with me, and sometimes we yeah. would muse about, you know, their eighteen ninety nine origin and maybe my twenty fifty ending, and what what are the big lessons learned, and what are the arcs, where did the arc of history leave them? I mean, you have to realize they were, uh, they survived. They spent their young adulthood uh, in the in the South during uh, Jim Crow laws, oh, sure. and. You know, and but yet they were positive people. I mean, they uh, they just somehow you know their better angels just really showed all the time, and which I thought was pretty amazing. But they had learned lessons in life, and uh, and and I just think that added to this idea of a kind of black and white: do the right thing, guiding oneself and belief in oneself.
1: Mm. Yeah, that is that's extraordinary. Um, I mean. It's also true that you in your lifetime in this in this profession have have been re- have really been there at the birth of new fields and fields within the field, right? I mean, yeah. none of your professors even when you got to college or graduate school I think would have had a degree in computer science.
0: Yeah, it was a fascinating it's been a fascinating journey with computer science and I computer science and me. Uh, In particular, like, as you pointed out, by the time I go to college, you know, there were no professors who actually had computer science degrees. Uh, Computer science was this blend of mathematics and electrical engineering at MIT. And so that's pretty much where uh, the where my professors came from, from those two camps
1: and and yet were they so so that it wasn't the origin of their degrees but they were at that point calling it was it called computer science even? it was
0: actually called computer science back then the original okay. founding paper that really started to make the the case for computer science is in 1965 it appears in science uh, and it's by three who, people who become really well-known in computer science, and, they, and in the, the name of the paper is, what is computer
1: science? What is this thing? <laughs> uh, I mean, and then, I mean, just to, just to keep going here, you, in 2001, um, so actually more than 100 years after your great-grandparents were born, you became MIT's first African-American woman to earn a Ph.D., in computer science, yeah, it's a sad state of
0: affairs for MIT. It is. <laughs> it really <laughs> it is. is. Like, it just that says that everything is not, about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that's not a good thing. Yeah, right? that that's absolutely not a good thing. <laughs> and I don't think the numbers have gotten a lot of improvement since either. Mm. Um, mm. You know it, and you know, and the, it, what's really interesting is that also has played a lot in, in shaping the work that I do. Uh, being yeah. the only black or the only woman often in the room and recognizing for the world that the technology has lots of values baked into its design. But those yeah. values pretty much come from 20-year-old white guys who don't have families, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, they, and, and everyone else in society is struggling when, the, when they, their, their use case wasn't really a part of the base
1: design Yeah, because they nobody else was in the room. Yeah, and I've been thinking—I was thinking as I was as I was getting ready to talk to you about how—so, you know, I've been—I started this show uh, 20 years ago, but actually started piloting before that. So I like to say at the turn of the century, right, <laughs> around the same time—around <laughs> the same yeah. time that you were breaking that embarrassing milestone. Um, uh, and the conversation— that I would that I was having twenty years ago, or you know, across these decades, and I mean, it's so interesting to remember, even like that's pre-social media, right? So, yeah. so the conversation was about the internet, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> and so the technological revolution was the internet, and and I I've always been seeking out you know people who bring wisdom to this, and 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 who are thoughtful and who and who were thinking in 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 moral terms and about social implications. And one of the one of the ideas that came through that really has shaped the way I've approached both kind of my life with technology and this conversation is the idea that as all-encompassing um, and dramatic as these technologies have been and, and in how they've landed in our lives, um and even for those of us who are kind of in the middle of our lives, right? And then suddenly we're on in like a new country <laughs> um that that these technologies, the internet, as we would say ten or fifteen years ago, was is and is still in its infancy, yeah. and that we remain, even though it doesn't feel like this, we <laughs> remain the grown-ups in the room, and that that it is our that it has been ours to shape these technologies to human purpose. And I feel like. This is precisely the lens that you took on. I mean maybe for all the reasons that that you and I just just went over that that really feels to me like it is it, it runs through um, all these various things you've done, you know what you teach but also founding the public interest tech lab and 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 working I mean for what is it US Federal <laughs> Trade Commission. Um, a Professor of the Practice of Government and Technology, um, and the work you're doing with kind of sick technology in the civic space. So I don't know. how does that how does that sound to you like a, a, an accurate way to talk about, you know, your lens of approach on all of this?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty consistent. I mean, in many ways, just as my passion with math led me to computer science and my love of computer science, you know, led me to realize that the world was changing. I mean, it was really clear by the time I was a graduate student that there was a revolution coming and it was going to change everything. But, you know, but in my uh, naiveness at the time and in my excitement— as a graduate student, I said, "Yeah, but it's going to right all of the wrongs of society. It's going to make everything right. After all, technology is doesn't see race. It doesn't see gender. It's cheap. Mm-hmm. It can e- be easily reproduced." Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was going to lead us all to a better democracy, a more perfect world. And and so, in many ways, I think now 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 that the decades have rolled by my pursuit from the graduate student years on has really been the same and that is how to make the how to make technology deliver on that promise hmm. on that vision you know and just as math was gave me certainty and comfort I, I want society to have technology without all the harms and that's absolutely possible because most of the harms come are that we experience are arbitrary
1: or added on uh, and they don't have to be that way. And you know, I think that that those kinds of that I, that idealism and optimism and those rose-colored glasses that you talked about, I mean, I think I think that that was true of society as a whole, right? We went into this very optimistically. Um
0: Yeah, but I think the difference was I felt like, wait a second, this guy's messing up. And meanwhile, like you're saying, Mm -hmm. society says, this is the best thing since Apple Pie, right? (laughs) Right? Don't tell me about these problems, LaDanya. We want to just keep using this shiny new thing. And I'm like, yeah, but you can use the shiny new thing, but the shiny new thing needs to behave itself. It needs to be doing this or that. (laughs) Right, you're the (laughs) grown-up. exactly. (laughs) And uh, and you know what's really funny? um, My first professorship was at Carnegie Mellon, and -hmm. I would teach a class called Data Privacy, and students (laughs) would take my class, and I would wonder why they even bothered to sign up because they didn't believe in privacy, right? And, and in particular, what, what that meant was it wasn't that they didn't believe in privacy. They didn't believe that the technology was, was, would violate their privacy. Yeah. And they were arguing, but if, 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 if privacy on Facebook was a problem, how come we'd all be in it together? It would be a bigger deal, they'd say. Sure. But it was literally society just in love with it. Now let's fast forward to today. Today I teach classes, the students call them the save the world classes. Yeah. And uh, now the students, if I don't even bring up a, uh, before I can even bring up privacy as one of the kinds of clashes that we talk about with society with technology and society, the students will bring up privacy very quickly, and and they'll even use examples from Facebook, and I'll look like what just happened? Really, <laughs> yeah. really? And, and, and they and then they'll go on to talk about the stealth activities they have to go t- take undertake in order to have privacy on Facebook. And so mm-hmm. when I when I then give to them what my earlier students gave to me is questions. Uh, they say, well, that's, and, and I asked them what happened. They said, oh, that's because that was my parents' generation. And then I look and I say, oh, my God, that's
1: true. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, did you, ha- have you, what? did that happen quickly or gradually? Did you, wa- was there, because was was that a kind of big pivot generationally? Yeah, the, the it's thing you're a, talking about. It has
0: definitely been a big pivot. It, it's yeah. it's that point where society seemed to have moved from open, uh, you know, just blind trust in technology yeah. to. Concerns, major concerns, real concerns, and mm-hmm. it even. Ha- I think certainly 2016 was a huge change in that pr- perspective, but it started happening right b- before 2016. If you use students as an indicator,
1: hmm. I mean, you actually had a kind of big turning point of your own—a before and an after moment—in um, 1997, which I guess was your version of this pivot. Would um, you? Yeah. which involved. I mean, it was a where that I read that you said, you met an ethicist who told of a grim future where technology <laughs> rules our lives.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty amazing. I was a graduate student at the time at MIT and... Uh, and I was sort of walking through the lounge on my way to get some coffee, and I hear this ethicist say, computers are evil. Now you have to remember, as a graduate student, I'm thinking of, oh my god, this amazing world is about to unfold, and now I hear this person say, computers are evil. I'm like, I gotta stop and fix her thinking. (laughs) Like, what is she, like, doesn't she understand what technology is about? And so she and I get engaged in this conversation, and it's like 10,000 foot up, and eventually we start coming down to some concrete examples, and she names one in particular. She says, well, look at this. There's this health insurance that was given out to the uh, health insurance about state employees, their families and retirees. All of their hospital records were included in this. And a copy has already been given to researchers and another copy sold to industry. And so her, her and and I said, yeah, but look, oh my God, if that's done at scale, we could we could save lives sooner. We could find better ways to cut costs. We could come up with hypotheses about related to illness and disease and treatment. And she says, yeah, that's all true, but what if the data is not anonymous? Because she she because when you look at the data, it doesn't have name, it doesn't have address, it doesn't have social security number, uh, so it doesn't have any explicit identity in it. And right. so she says so. And she said, she says, if the data is anonymous, that that would be great. But if the data is not anonymous, then people could identify our judges, and they could blackmail them, you know. Mm-hmm. And she went on to talk about all the ways that the data could be used to sort of undercut our expectations in society, and and she literally kind of foretold the future about not just that technology, but other technologies, sort of uh, breaking our social contracts. So now in my eagerness, I'm like, well, let me explain. I'm sure that data is just fine, I tell her. (laughs) So I look at the data, and in the demographics, it has month, day, and year of birth, gender, and five-digit zip code. And so... So I do this quick calculation in my head. There are 365 days in a year. Let's say people live 100 years, and there were two genders in the database. If you multiply that out, that's 73,000 possible unique combinations. But I happen to know that the typical five-digit zip code in Massachusetts only had about 25,000 people. Hmm. And so that meant that that data would probably be unique for most everyone that was there in the data.
1: So, so now my my uh, my hopes are, <laughs> are fading. And is this is so. This is a way because I had I, I had kind of trouble under you know just kind of comprehending. But so here's another way. I think you said it somewhere. Eighty or somebody wrote eighty seven percent of the population of the United States can be uniquely identified by only their date of birth, gender, and five digit zip code. Yeah, exactly. Which was, is right. stunning to say it that way.
0: Yeah, and and it was it was it was in a. Amazing situation. In that particular data set, I use as an example, uh, William Weld, when he was the governor of Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. only six people had his date of birth, only three of them were men, and he was the only one in his five-digit zip code. So by linking the voter data on the health data on those same fields, you could put his name uniquely to his record. And then, like you said, using 1990 census data, we estimated that 87% of the population were kind of like Governor Mm -hmm. Weld. And what was pretty amazing, though, is that about a month later, I was testifying down in D.C. Yeah. And about three months to six months later, laws around the world were changing, citing that example. It's often called the Weld experiment. And it's pretty, you know, and the reason was it wasn't just that one data set. That was the best practice around the world. And what that experiment really shows us is how technology, and of course, the technology we're talking about then is a personal computer oh, with with right. a, a seventy megabyte hard drive, right? <laughs> right. Um, but it was it was about how that te- how society wasn't aware of the ways that these changes in technology would undercut our expectations for all kinds of values, you know, uh, from from and, and now, of course, even democracy itself. Mm. I'm sorry, this is Paul uh, at WBUR. Can I just uh, interrupt you real quick? Um, Professor Sweeney, I've kind of noticed you've sort of leaned forward to the point where you're
1: kind of way uh. past the mic. I think if you back up just a yeah. I think About like this? There we go. Oh, that even that's sounds better be in bad. my ear. Uh, yeah, I'm so, sorry <laughs> to interrupt. No, well, we want the best recording possible. I want Krista's yeah. show to be fantastic, <laughs> as, she, sure, as right. they always are. You, you it's fantastic. You, you're fantastic. Okay, I, I um, thank you, Paul i I want to read something actually just because it's fun to read. But, but as we keep going, it's it's also um, uh, just takes us a little deeper into this. So this is actually I guess this was this was in Scientific American. It was an article about you, and I guess it was when you were at Carnegie Mellon. Do you remember this? Yes. Okay. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) There's a visual. You know, radio is the most visual medium, so get ready. Um, LaTanya Sweeney attracts a lot of attention. It could be because of her deep affection for esoteric and cunning mathematics. Or maybe it is the black leather outfit she wears (laughs) while riding her Honda VTX 1300 motorcycle around the sedate campus of Carnegie Mellon (laughs) University, where she directs the Laboratory for International Data Privacy. Whatever the case, Sweeney suspects the attention helps to explain her fascination with protecting people's privacy. Because at the heart of her work lies a nagging question. Is it possible to maintain privacy, freedom, and safety in today's security-centric, data-based world where identities sit ripe for the plucking? (laughs) (laughs) Um Yes, I still ride the
0: motorcycle, but I'm you? updated to an Indian Springfield. <laughs> but yes. Okay.
1: Glad to know that. Um You know, you often um you often raise you often bring his uh, kind of a historical perspective in when you're in in conversations. Um the context that that this uh Technological. This new technological state we're in is a is 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 a is a new industrial revolution. Um, these companies, these digital technologies, are not like what we've had before, um, and I, I find I just I find that really helpful um, in so many ways. Is that something? That you became aware of gradually, or how, how did that start to dawn on you? How has that helped you put all of this into perspective?
0: Well, what made me start to think about surely society's experienced something like this before was when it first started, as you know, it was data privacy, With the, starting with the Weld experiment. And that goes on to sort of pioneer this field known as data privacy. And that was sort of the first major clash was privacy. But then all the, we we look up and then there are these discrimi- discrimination and biases in algorithms. And yeah. I did, was first to do some work in that and sort of shed light on how algorithms that are supposed to be statistical decision-making are actually, like, like not not what we really should be using. And we have to really question uh, whether it's appropriate, giving us the appropriate answers. And I had so, so many graphic examples, and others came and also showed even more. And so that's been a real problem. And so by the time we got to the third wave around some of the democracy and election work and how technology was undercutting our democracy and, and so forth, Um, you start to realize that, oh, my God, the number of problems is just growing exponentially. Mm -hmm. So I teach a class, the Save the World class, as the students call it, and we try to tackle four real-world problems in real time during the semester. We take Mm. four real-world clashes, and sometimes the solution is, is, is technology or policy that'll fix it. Sometimes it's an experiment to sort of show the nature and character of the problem and, or whatever, whatever the issue is, we just tackle them and we do it four times, which is pretty amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And then, the, then we turn the loo- students loose and they do it a fifth time. When I used to teach the class, I sort of would pre, pre, sort of preload the class with what we're going to be our four. And the first couple of – the first few years, you know, you would choose four out of maybe six. And the next year, it's like, I'm going to choose four out of these 25. Right. You mean all (laughs) things just could immediately
1: occur that were
0: problematic? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah we're We're not going to be able to make progress if we only do four years right, right. Or, or or fifth with even some of the students, and then you realize that, oh my God, it's changing everything and so the question was where in else has society experienced something like this mm-hmm. and so, as I began to look historically, I started looking first at by technology, by technology, and I'm like, no, but this is bigger than that, it's bigger than a television it's bigger than you yeah. know it's not just communication. Uh, it's bigger than the printing press, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so that's when I came to realize as I was reading about the history and the impact of the Second Industrial Revolution. And I wasn't the first to make this awareness because the uh, uh, historians themselves have been calling the times we're going through the Third Industrial Revolution. And they put the start date back at 1950 with the invention of the semiconductor. and now as we and then if you think about it you know our iPhones and iPods and the internet of things the all the internet all of these things are sort of revolutions within this revolution yeah and now as we are looking at generative AI it's yet another revolution yeah and it's changed everything already how we how we live how we work how we play how we communicate with each other and the end is nowhere in sight we don't know when this is going to end and and yet, the earliest of the clashes, like privacy, are still not resolved.
1: No, they're yeah, right. It feels like they're almost just at the. They keep being at the beginning again, almost. Yeah, um, it feels like we're right. Like,
0: you, you know, but except you have to take stock in those students. Mm. You have to take mm. stock in the fact that today's students are more skeptical of technology. Mm-hmm. It's not that they don't want the shiny new thing. They're saying, well, how could this go wrong? And for mm-hmm. the first time when one of these new innovative technologies come forward, like generative AI, it's the first time that I'm getting everyone from government officials to civil society organizations asking, how can this go wrong? <laughs> so They're right. asking upfront, not not just running after the shiny new thing.
1: So... I want. I want to talk about generative AI. Be- before we do that, though, I, d- I just want to say something that I came to understand about this matter of what makes our our in, our revolution different from previous ones. That um, and and perhaps you were drawing on historians, but I just I heard you explaining this in a way that was really helpful. That so, when the car was invented, for example, so <laughs> like with the, with previous technologies, there was. Um, there was a runway yeah. you know that even like as you said with cars you had to build roads right i mean right. there was there was time with the car or the camera or the telephone or even the printing press between the in the conception of something the design of something the distribution of something and it becoming part of people's lives and that in that time there was deliberation on what could go wrong right like that, right. that there was that there was time and stuff going yeah
0: yeah and and not it was time and also there it required a social contract so for mm-hmm. example you you we had cars but who owned the roads i mean the roads were made they were primarily horses were using them. They were made out of dirt. There was nothing but hole- potholes. And yeah. to try to run cars over it, that, w- that meant we needed cities and others to invest in actually building roads. Yeah. And that was a negotiation between society and the manufacturers that had to unfold. Who, and, right. and and what happened during that unfolding? Well, when you first would get in the car and you push the gas pedal, we don't know how fast it might go, right? It might yes. go slowly forward or it might just bolt as fast as it could go. And brakes, if you hit the brake, it may not work quite as you might expect, certainly not to today's standards. Well, these things caused harms to individuals and became major lawsuits and concerns and um, and so, as a result, if you know, if you want pay, ro- paved roads, you basically have to improve the safety of the automobile.
1: And right. So of, all this was working in concert. That's right. Complicated process, as you say, that brought everybody in before it was launched on the world. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. certainly as and, and as it was unfolding, but mm-hmm. here where commercial adoption is the only thing that makes it th- that's needed. Right. And where the right. cost is usually a free technology or seemingly free, it's not really free, but seemingly not doesn't cost me out of my pocket to use the to use, to use Google search for example.
1: Right. Um
0: it 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 makes you feel as there's no downside.
1: Right. Um and so one of the things that you've also been really leading on is this matter of, you know, okay, so uh, in this in this world we inhabit, with these technologies we have, um, what is the right way to intervene? I mean, which really is a way to ask in to get really pragmatic and granular about that question of how to shape these technologies to human purpose. And you talk about looking for the sweet spot. Would you Would you explain that?
0: Yeah, exactly. You know. Normally, when some clash happens, it's usually, by the way, when the technology's gone through the life cycle all the way into the marketplace, and now the problem rears itself, and society finds itself in a take-it-or-leave-it situation. Mm -hmm. And when it's in that take-it-or-leave-it moment, that's exactly how the discussion goes. It's either all or nothing. It's a zero-sum gain. If I have to give up privacy, if if I have to have more privacy, I have to give up some utility. If I need more utility, I can't... Uh, I can't have the privacy. And this kind of zero-sum argument is so far from the truth. The truth is, most of the time, it's a design issue. Either the commercialization of the product is causing the clash or an arbitrary design decision. And in those particular cases, there exist these sweet spots where we can actually have all of the benefits or maximize the utility, and we can do it without the harms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my that's what we try to do in the work that I do is how do you get society how do we get society and the manufacturer to move to the sweet spot
1: and that means and that sometimes- ha- asking a- well and asking these questions and and having the version in the design stage before um it's out in the marketplace is that well- right.
0: Right so we have solutions all the way through the life cycle. So if it's okay. really early on the best thing you can start off with some principles. Mm-hmm. If you're the, if you're funding this thing you can say well look I have these principles and I want this thing to adhere to the principles. Now principles alone are not going to get you a right. non a, a, a technology That's clash-free. But during design, right, you can do risk assessments. You can do various kinds of impact assessments to know where are the problems and how do you go about fixing them. And usually that's the cheapest, easiest way because it's usually just incidental. But Mm -hmm. by the time a business package gets put on it, how it's going to be sustained, how it's going to make money, and then it goes into the marketplace where it gets adopted, now it's really hard. Those easier solutions, they're gone. That time is gone already. Yeah, and so now we're left into this take it or leave it, and the sweet spots are harder to get to because either we've got to have some patch or some technology yeah. add-on, or yeah. we're going to have to live with the harms, or something like that, or it's got, to, or there's going to be a lawsuit, and it's going to take so long for it to 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 be resolved that some new technology will replace it. Um, yeah,
1: and it it sounds to me like you are. Um kind of behind the scenes of our 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 public narrative of uh imminent catastrophe <laughs> um, you are actually consulting with vcs you are are you also um in conversations inside these companies
0: so yes in in part, I mean, you have to think if you're the company so the the vc world is a fascinating world these are it has an entrepreneurial spirit a can do roll up your sleeves we're going to make this happen and I, which i love because that's exactly my attitude too we're going to build this technology yeah. just right we're yeah. going yeah. to solve these problems and uh, and so there's a in that way we're very much alike. But but you know making technology is not as easy as it sounds. Some you know if it already existed somebody would have done it, right? I mean mm-hmm. if somebody has already done it then it's easy to replicate. It's a lot easier to replicate than it is to when you're doing the first one. And that means that it's a, some hard problem to solve. And people are busy trying to solve this very hard problem. So they're not trying to do evil. They're just right. ignoring all the other all. The <laughs> other problems that their creation could create. And we're trying to say, no, you've got to think about this too. This is not it's not okay to just ignore that. And then from a VC standpoint, there's also this business package question of, well, the investment needs to make money eventually in a, in a particular time period. And it creates a kind of interesting tension because on the one hand, if there's a problem that's not being resolved in design that could be resolved in design, they could rust, risk disruption, right? They could end up losing their investment completely right. if society shuns it. And we've right. come close to that in society, but more often we don't. Instead, they just don't reap the full benefit of it right? because it has some clash and it's got people a, a bit leery or uncomfortable and so forth. So so that's – that's, um, so we've been trying to work with venture capital and entrepreneurs to, to go ahead and take the more complicated route of thinking through what are the clashes might be and are there easy, simpler solutions. Later, you know, we, you know, I also was the chief technology officer at the Federal Trade Commission for a while. So mm-hmm. we also work with government who's got to figure out how do I govern this thing. Like, like, what is what is my what is the responsibility to society when this new technology comes out? You don't want to get in the way of, 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 of the market doing its thing. But to what extent, some of the time, most of the time, these clashes are kind of a market failure. There's no representation in our regular market system for them, yeah. but yet their cost to us as a society is very great.
1: You know, it it feels to me like the this orientation that. That, that has developed in you um, to, as you say, starting with just all-out enthusiasm, this is going to make everything better, and then becoming really aware that of unforeseen consequences and of the need. And, and really, it's a, it's, it's a creative uh, challenge, right, mm-hmm. to, to, to try to see those and work with them, which actually, in my mind— you know, I, I feel like it's it's a move that culturally, it's actually a a move of of adulthood, right? Understanding mm-hmm. that life is m- mostly about as <laughs> <it's> much <laughs> about things that go wrong or not as we plan um as things that go right, and that actually that's how we learn and grow. And yet we don't necessarily um make those assumptions and behave that way, especially when it comes to the market. Or, um, yeah. And so, so so, I guess I just, so now I'm just really curious about how all of these things you've done and this, this um, you know, this way you approach technology in general and our lives with technology, like how has this prepared you and shaped you now to greet this new world of generative AI?
0: Well, I mean, I still have the same excitement uh, with mm. all the technology, I definitely feel still the energy that I felt uh, as a graduate student. But, of course, we're far more worried now than we yeah. were as, a, as I wasn't a graduate student because we haven't righted any of these clashes. We haven't resolved any of the big ones. And, and I think society itself is feeling the tethering. Like, so, for example, uh, social media, we don't have the slightest idea how to do content moderation at scale.
1: Right, we just don't know how stage. to do it, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, it's,
0: it's not the fault of Google or Twitter or anyone. We just don't know. Computer scientists haven't actually thought about it. Mm. You know, we need great mm-hmm. minds. To, we need about a thousand really good minds to really think about how do you solve content moderation at scale? Yeah. And we don't know – we haven't resolved how you build trust at scale. Journalism has gone through major transformations, yeah. disinformation, and so forth. And what do you trust? And generative AI plays right into those fault lines, <laughs> right, right into it. Right. They're going to be exasperated like times 10 or times 100. And so, <sighs> so we don't really have time quite on our side either. <laughs> uh, it's a society we're not quite ready for. But on the other hand, generative AI is very exciting. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I think if anybody was to hear me talk and and they walk away feeling gloom and doom, I don't have the gloom and doom. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, 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 it is not the great panacea either.
1: Right. I, it it I will say it does. Um, it does though feel to me like it is quite a different moment from let's say social media being unleashed right i mean Mm -hmm. facebook becoming available to the public in 2006 there was or or just even the way we used to talk about those companies how fun they are right (laughs) and as you said like algorithms are just math right it's just code (laughs) it's all morally neutral and um the connection economy (laughs) 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 it's going to connect us and I do feel like, and I'm just, I'm just, I really want to know. I want you to push back or add your own. It feels to me like this is a more sober moment that even the developers and coders are confessing that they're surprised by the, some of the speed and scale with with which this has unfolded, and some of what it has shown itself capable of. And it feels to me. Of course, this is a big generalization, but there's a different kind of invitation, even from the companies, for society to help shape the way this technology unfolds. Is that? Are you experiencing that?
0: Well, I think it's really (sighs) reliving the. You have to go if you went back to 1998, So, I show you how old I am. If you were to go back to 1998, um, the biggest challenge of our time was e-commerce. That is, mm-hmm. people wanted to use the internet, but they wanted to be able to find a way to submit their credit cards online safely. <laughs> right? Like how can we do that? And of course the answers are now to be HTTPS. Mm-hmm. These were those problems seem so simple and small in comparison yeah. to what we face today, but this same kind but the company conversation is exactly the same. It's as one of my colleagues said, they're saying, I want to do the right thing, is what he says, he hears. But what they really mean is they just want to do the thing. <laughs> right? okay. And if I've got to talk to society to say, make sure we're not going to do any evil, we're going to just only do the right thing, that's what they're saying. But at the end of the day, they're excited by this product. They want to push the, the – the, they're making lots of money from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just want to make sure nobody's going to get in the way to stop it. Mm-hmm. And so so we're we're happy that they are at least there but at the, but but that's not an honest engagement of what are risk and responsibilities though.
1: Okay.
0: And it doesn't put them in the position of being forthright in terms of accepting more transparency or more accountability in what in what's going on.
1: Well, let me just ask you um as somebody in this field, you know, you, you you did you did use the word exciting a minute ago. I mean, what 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 excites you and what what surprises you about um, generative AI?
0: Well, what, in some ways, you know, like I said, going back to my own age of history, um, yeah. I, I remember when spell checkers came out, right? And people were <laughs> like, oh, my God, children are going to never know how to spell again. We're all going to lose mm. that. Mm-hmm. Or when word processing came along and people were like, well, what about handwriting? Nobody's going to teach it anymore. Right. And, um, and, and, it, and in that way, something like a chat GPT, is sort of in that same evolution. That is, I give it a prompt and it gives me a first draft, and it can be a first draft of anything—a poem, a, a chapter yeah. in a book, a, a, you know, a song. Uh, I don't know. I don't. It could never do a Krista interview, but <laughs> but the the, the, no. the it does. You know. So I um I'm excited in the sense that it's pushing us into another tool. Like I'll just stick to Chat GPT now because I just think yeah. it's. Yeah. Generative AI is much broader than only ChatGPT, but ChatGPT has become the poster child of it. Mm. And it's a great poster child because it's you know you can go to the website, you can try it yourself, and you can produce anything out of it, right? And it has all of the benefits and features and concerns that we see in general with generative AI. So, so that's all. I think that those are all the good things. But then I could flip around and say yeah so we're just mo- moving the evolution from going from you know writing to typing on a computer to spell checking on a computer mm. to grammar checking to first drafts. Right. So one could argue that's the 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 arc and we shouldn't worry too much. But what makes this one also different on the concern side though is we I mean there's lots of concerns one of which is we probably, the internet in five years, maybe even as short as three years, won't be the internet that we know today. Right now, most yeah. of the content on the internet, good or bad, wrong, right or wrong, full of disinformation or whatever, is pretty much human-generated.
1: Right.
0: But in three years, most of the content is going to be bot-generated. Yeah,
1: I've heard and you it's say going that. And
0: yeah. it's going to be a huge echo chamber. And so... And so if we don't know how to do content moderation on social media, how do you do content moderation when it seems like every original piece of writing is saying the same thing and it's all really from the same source?
1: Right. So so one of the questions that, I, that that just prompts in me is maybe we just become – I mean, we, we should be less trusting now than we are, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe we just become more reasonably untrusting of – What's on the internet? Maybe, maybe, I guess I'm saying maybe it's okay. I mean, I realize that's really simplistic, but
0: but but so if it was 1995 and you said Mm -hmm. I'm going to be distrustful of what's on the internet, that's one thing because Mm -hmm. there because your notion of truth and your notion of news and your notion of what's right. And your notion of whether or not what people be- believe is coming from all of these other sources that kind of – they had their own problems. But for the most part, we could argue they were probably more reliable than mm-hmm. being in an echo chamber with chat GPT, right? Right. Um, and so ne- – but if the Internet of today it, or even the Internet of tomorrow – we – increasingly don't know how to know what's right. So let me give you a couple of examples. Okay. Um, so if you ask ChatGPT Ch- gpt just medical questions, w- which my students and I did this spring, one of the things that kind of popped out was if you ask medical questions around uh, common diseases, sometimes you get the right answer <laughs> and sometimes you get drink bleach, and then other and if you ask it about more obscure medical problems, you get reliable content. And huh. so why is that happening? It's happening because ChatGPT learned all it knows, and it, it actually doesn't know anything. It's just statistical correlations around words and and, and, and how you put these words together. Um, it learned it on the internet. Right. And so it has this crazy. it has all the biases. Of the internet. So it's one of the Mm -hmm. most racist, sexist things you could imagine. It's so racist and sexist, they actually write a program to interface between ChatGPT and the world
1: right and the, the companies right yeah in place. yeah so that so that
0: certain things won't come out like you know mm-hmm. uh, but there, but it's not perfect because we don't know how to do moderation at
1: scale <laughs> right? as you said a minute ago
0: <laughs> right so we don't even know how to moderate chat GPT so when we want it to reveal itself to have these biases you know the students had so much fun finding great prompts that would make it reveal it's it, these these types of biases
1: right it seems to me also though that but by the same token in terms of our agency like that we have an agency to lower or raise the quality of what we get back from it by the it's. I hate this word prompt. Right, like it's it feels so simple, right? Because I want to say the questions, the quality <laughs> of the questions we ask of it, yeah. um, which we're talking about in terms of prompt. I mean, you're using it. You're using it in in the classroom, right?
0: I use it in the classroom. I use it all the time because uh-huh. I want to know what it's good for and what it's not good for, and, and what do you, how to and what understand do you, it. And and. I'll give you an example. A student of mine typed in, this is literally the only thing that the student typed in, write a research paper by LaTanya Sweeney. Mm -hmm. And what came out was a beautifully formatted research paper. It it had an abstract, an introduction, a background, method section, statistically relevant results, and beautiful bibliography, references at the end. Uh, The only thing is, none of it's true. I never did that survey. <laughs> I never did that study. Uh, that's as far as I can tell. That study never happened. It was mm-hmm. all about privacy too. <laughs> it was all about data privacy, <laughs> and, <laughs> the, and these and the results were significant. And none of the references were real. Mm-hmm. That's
1: pretty amazing. So, what so, do you make of that? What? Do, because, so, <laughs> you know, we keep ta- I, the language. I'm, and, and now I'm speaking as a kind of you know consumer out here, non-specialist, not in the field, which most of us aren't. This language of uh... hallucination. That's right. Which is so—it's such a fanciful. It's so interesting that that's the word that's being used technically, even. Yeah. Right. Because it's making things up. Right? Or you, <laughs> right. you might say lying. Right. Like you might say, if it were a person, you would call it lying. Right. If you um, turn that—if you turn that in, and
0: in fact, there was a lawyer that turned in a brief that ChatGPT made, and of course, none yeah. of the cases real. Right? right. And so well, we, the you—that that lawyer has to personally suffer the consequences of that because ultimately he's responsible for what he submitted
1: But judge I mean, isn't responsible it's, it's a weird kind of creativity that it has <laughs> i mean i'm just asking you as a computer scientist how does that what do you, what do you think of this Weird creativity, or is that even like well, the right word? You know, it's been it, so you ever
0: use you've we've been using completing readers for a while. So, like, if you go on your phone and you're typing in a text message, or you're mm-hmm. typing in a word processor, and it wants to finish the sentence finish the for sentence, you, yeah. right? Yeah. So, all it's learned, or what do you normally type after this? It's, this yeah. is my best guess is what I think comes after this word, you know, mm-hmm. or this is what I think comes. That's all Chat GPT is doing. Mm-hmm. This is my best guess is what I think you would go here because yeah, I the want best some-
1: guess is that she would have done this study, <laughs>
0: right, exactly, and it would have yeah. had these results, <laughs> right, and that they would be statistically significant. I mean, right. That's the
1: funniest part, <laughs>
0: right? Um, <laughs> and it kind of look, and the references would kind of look like this. She'd have about thirty mm-hmm. of them, <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: right? I I don't know. I don't. I mean, it's. I don't even know. I don't even know what questions to ask about this. It just feels like such a new it feels like such a new territory. Yeah in some but, ways. I know what you're saying. It's a it's follows on territory we've been on. Um, yeah. But it is yet. a
0: new thing. It's a new tool. Uh-huh. It's it has its own implications now, right? It's yeah. not even starting from scratch, which is one of the points that we're trying to make. But but what do what do its challenges look like to society? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things is we'll never be able to trust reviews. We got to have a whole new way. Like I can never trust. Uh, Amazon review or, or movie review because, the you know, we have these <laughs> heuristics we developed. Well, right. I know it's a real review because, they look, they wrote lots of text about it. <laughs> I right. know it's a real review because, you know, they're talking so specifically. But yeah. now you can imagine, I'm sure there probably already is a company <laughs> that will generate <laughs> reviews for you at scale where every one of them is multiple paragraphs uh, and none of them are hu- made by humans. Right. you know and in, and even in our governance though if you're if you're a politician you know your constituents are upset if you start receiving letters say or right. emails now if all of the letters and emails all have the same pattern you know somebody's running a campaign and lots of people are just sending the same letter or the email but if every one of them goes on for two or three pages and each is unique from each other you would is that Lots of different people, or is it one person in fifteen minutes running chat GPT?
1: Oh my gosh so you know what i'm what I'm trying to think through now is what is what is the human condition what are the human condition implications of of generative AI yeah. and um, you know something that that you also alluded to a minute ago, which I, I feel like we haven't kind of stated just clearly enough as what is the elemental thing that happened here is that this technology is a student of us, right? Us yeah. on the Internet, right? Yeah, that's it's right. Us yes. on the Internet, <laughs> which is a huge qualification. Um, so if I just say that phrase to you, the human condition implications of, of generative AI of or chat TPT, tell me where that takes your mind.
0: Yeah, Well, it makes me a little afraid.
1: <laughs> hmm.
0: It makes me afraid because... Um, like I was saying in the 1990s, if ChatGPT came out then, you know, we had other trusted sources and people would have just been able to discount it. But we don't yeah. But our other trusted sources are gone. And, you know, and we've been – this conversation has been very focused on ChatGPT. We're coming up in the 2024 election. And mm-hmm. fake videos, fake images mm-hmm. that you can't distinguish is also another mind-boggling issue right so uh-huh. you know you know me looking like I'm 18 years old with today is so easy to do uh, take a, a politician showing them in a compromising position that never happened but that fuels a, a conversation or an argument that people want to be- the naysayers want to believe. It's it's just a matter of writing a prompt. Think about that. That's so crazy. And literally within 60 seconds, there is this beautiful image or there's this video of that person doing that.
1: Okay, but I'm talking to Latanya Sweeney <laughs> <laughs> who says we don't have to sacrifice privacy to have the benefits of our technology. I mean, you know, I'm just I'm just curious about how are you Framing this for yourself and your students, if you continue on this path you've been on doggedly <laughs> <talkedly laughs> these years, um... What do we what do we do about that, or what is it giving us to learn? Which I think is another well, interesting question. Well,
0: I think the the first thing that's give, and I think that's the right way to think about it too, Krista. Is you know what are the big things to learn here? What are the big takeaways, or what? Where the space of harms are going to look like? Where are the space of harms apt to be? Mm-hmm. And and one of those harms, you know, we just talked about is any place where I'm expecting a. I'm expecting writing and original writing to be a proxy for to be representative of a real person. That is no longer true. Okay, you know, in 2016, my students and I we were one of the first to find all, all, some a, a, a kind of, a, a whole series of disinformation that we call persona bots. But one of the things that was really interesting about that particular system of bots was that when they delivered disinformation, you would click on the link and it was an amazing website. Like it looked like it was the New York Times, but it wasn't, but it was made up. Or it was, uh, it looked like it could be uh, a, a a a Wall Street Journal or something like that with color paper, I mean, and fonts and everything. It was just amazing reproduction. And, of course, two weeks later, that website's gone. Mm. And, and the stories in it were in the service of whatever the disinformation was. What's fascinating about that, that was clearly a state actor. That's the level of mm. cost mm. and complexity that was required to pull that off. But today, with, a cha- with generative AI, we're, we're all amazing artists. We all can take photographs of things that didn't happen. <laughs> we can mm-hmm. all write articles. And, and we aren't doing the writing or the photographing and so forth. We're literally just typing a couple of prompts and letting the generative AI make it. That means that the level of disinformation is going to go up dramatically.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, all of our, and our instincts about what is truth— is is really is that's the big challenge generative ai f- gives us as a society.
1: Right. But you know, I feel like we've spent a lot of time arguing about whose facts are right mm-hmm. and in that there was a flawed assumption that facts were ever what alone conveyed truth or landed in human bodies as truth. Yeah. So even—I I realize I'm being a little bit of a devil's advocate here, but even if, let's say, one of the things it gives us to learn is to be talking about the nature of truth. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an accomplishment, right? That would be an accomplishment.
0: And, and I think that's our best—that's a, a really great accomplishment that that is— is one of the most important things uh, for us to get our heads around now. That this challenge is, that's the biggest challenge we're facing. What do I think of as truth? What am I using? So that we become Mm -hmm. skeptics. The the biggest problem is we don't have a replacement yet for it. We don't have a solution for it. But that's where I think the overarching challenge comes from. The, The second challenge is... You know, is a U.S. one. This the internet is mostly a U.S. most of the data I learned on is from from an American perspective, which mm. means our stuff is
1: is this stuff our that's subjectivity, being, <laughs> our bias, right, our methodologies. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, c- c- just walk with me if you will <laughs> <laughs> down. You know how? So your your students take this class. What's it actually called? Officially called.
0: That's um, no, not isn't not called the save called the world save class, it. is it? Well, now we actually changed the title, so now it okay. is
1: actually called Technology uh, okay. Science to Save
0: the World. <laughs> okay.
1: um, where, so where, how is this going to be grappled with by by those students and in that kind of context?
0: Yeah. So we spent last spring semester uh, really just investigating. Uh, generative AI and all of its forms and including images and copyright issues and all, all these kinds of things yeah. to see, you know, uh, how do, can we produce a book in three days, things like that. Um, and I think that got us really, they gave us a lot of places to look, like the medical examples that I gave earlier. You know, like, when is it giving me right information and when is it giving me wrong information? When does it show its bias? Like, I forget exactly the prompt the student used, but it was comparing two candidates. And it says, well, she does okay for a girl. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You're like, okay, well, there you go. That's humanity, yeah. 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 But I— you know, but we're going to also be just sort of infiltrated with uh, bots, chat bots.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, and you know, now I don't know whether I'm typing to a human or whether it's really, you know, some kind of generative AI. Even if I'm talking on the phone, it still could be a generative AI. And so, so this, so so this, these are the kinds of things that we're sweating through now, how it can Mm -hmm. all go wrong, given this whole huge wave of uses that, you know, including within the university, right? It may not be your teacher. It may not be the one who's writing those comments about your paper. Maybe Mm -hmm. your teacher sent it over to ChatGPT to write a version of a response to your paper.
1: But, Um, I mean, is one implication of this that, that it weans many of us off the internet, right? No. I mean, no, I don't. I, well, or, or
0: let's say it differently. Okay, What's, maybe the internet is just become going to be a new kind. Maybe we're going to find a new thing mm-hmm. because you know, our need for a North Star around truth mm-hmm. is, is just fundamental to a democracy. Doesn't go away. Yeah. Right? We can't yeah. really survive if all of us come to a table with completely different belief systems and mm-hmm. not even be able to find a common fact that we agree on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. um, you know, so we're going to have to navigate our society through to that. And that's going to take some unpacking to figure out what this means and how, and, and, and how we get there. Um, but I think that's the biggest challenge of generative AI is mm-hmm. how do we build trust at scale?
1: But if you think about those previous worlds we talked about, I mean, yes, they had time, you know, the printing press or the car or the telephone or whatever. It was a much longer span of time getting disseminated. But, but it was transformative, right? It, there was incredible upheaval. And, and that, is, that is also true for our age, um,
0: And well, you know, you know what I would also liken it to electricity. So, when uh, electricity, like cars, had to be negotiated that is, somebody had to run these power lines, somebody had to have generators, and that required some negotiation. But you know, people's houses burned down, and people would Mm -hmm. plug things in, and you plug it in, it would blow up in your hand. All all of this stuff had to (laughs) be okay.
1: You're not making things better, though. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know, yeah. we mechanisms came to exist in society like Underwriters Laboratory and things like that yeah. to help us uh, navigate through that. Yeah. And, you know, I think your question, though, is will we have enough time as the speed of generative AI is moving that yeah. we'll be able to find those problems and find those kinds of solutions before we're so transformed we can't find our way back?
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Are you and worried that? I don't want to leave on a doom. Yeah. Gloom? No, no, don't worry. I will. Not, we, I will not let this end on doom. I, I'm in charge in that sense. But <laughs> I think we have to go all the way down this road. Um. Um. Well, let me ask you this. Um, well, let me let me ask you. I do want to ask you again. What what is the upside you see? What What does excite you? Because you also are closer than the rest of us in seeing that.
0: I think on the other hand, the ability to express ourselves is is certainly enhanced.
1: Mm. I have a
0: fifteen year old son, he yeah has an idea for a card game. I don't know if you know about Magic the Gathering, but one of the things about Magic the Gathering is they have these they're kind of a trading card, but you play them also. Mm. And and they have a lot of strategy in how you play them. But on the card, he they have these beautiful graph beautiful images that artists have generated. So he decided that he had an alternative game he wanted to design around a chess theme and but he can't do that art and he doesn't know artists that would give him art that he could use like a blazing queen or a bishop th- threatening a knight and stuff like that so he finds uh, he finds generative AI he types in a few prompts and voila these amazing <laughs> images come out mm-hmm. mm. <laughs> right and then he, and then you know using standard word processing with different color fonts and so forth he writes or draws a really impressive looking cards. And he does Hmm. this 80 times. Hmm. And he did that within a month. That's Hmm. amazing, right? Right. All of a sudden, we have a way of expressing our creativity that we never had before. I had a colleague who literally wrote a book in seven days. Oh my now gosh. I've been <laughs> tortured and tortured myself and tortured my family for years trying to get this book done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he wrote a book in seven days. It's crazy.
1: With 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 ChatGPT as a yeah, companion with as GPT. a helper. That's right. I mean, what's clear? What's clear is, especially again, I really like this histor- historical perspective. We are the generation in the middle of the mess, right? Like right. we're we're the generation right at the outset. Yeah. Where we can see so clearly what is being undone. Yep. And we can see the dangers because this thing is accelerated in its development. And we've
0: seen a few cycles. Mm-hmm. We've seen mm-hmm. a few cycles.
1: We're wary. In a way, we weren't wary yeah. with Facebook in the beginning.
0: But, but you know, until we can really get our head around how do we develop. Deploy an army of public interest technologists. yeah, we're not going to be able to get completely in front of it.
1: No you do say that there is a field emerging of yeah. public interest technologists. I mean, that's not a phrase most people have heard. You know? yeah,
0: and it doesn't right? really flow off the tongue that easily. No, no, <laughs> but it's it's comforting when it does. yeah, and it, it's really <laughs> most importantly though, it is really needed. Mm-hmm. it's really needed for someone who's going to represent society's interest and actually move us from what i would call a technocracy to mm-hmm. back to a democracy you know back to right now all of our rules that we live by are literally written by how the technology works what the right. technology can do how, whatever arbitrary design decisions it has and if you're using decision making algorithms it doesn't even matter what our laws are if you can't hmm. enforce them in the te- if the technology goes contrary to them right and and, the, and so we need Someone who's going to say, "Wait, I got to represent societal interests." Meaning, what are our values, and what are the things that we hold dear? I, in, in, in particular, what are our laws, right? right? And how do we make sure they get protected in today's society? And that's at the heart of public interest technology: is helping society navigate its way back to itself uh-huh. uh, mm. in, today.
1: I mean, I, I I would like you mentioned your son, and I would like to come back to you know a 15 year old is that is that how you how old yeah. you said he is yeah. i mean because like this generation of humans in particular is um they're just they're just being experimented on right i mean they're <laughs> yes. in the, this and so they are the product they are right they are the product and i mean in a way though i feel like I, you know my kids are kind of are older they're kind of tw- in their 20s and i and and or I'd say my, you know, and the years matter so much. A single year in this span of time matters so much in terms of how the technology had developed. So it's quite different for my younger child who's five years younger. Um, but I feel like a 15-year-old now, you know, well, yeah. is not right at the beginning. Like they, he probably has some instincts and some wiles and some wits about using and living with technology that is kind of an evolution, new evolutionary development.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I, I, my best, some of the best instincts I've had about that has been when he tries to write a paper for a school, mm. you know, how does, I, I would ask, well, why do you think that that's a good reference? Mm. And he had really good instincts about what made a good reference. Uh-huh. But two years from now, those instincts aren't going to work. It, you know, is uh-huh. it a big name? Is the font? Is it a website that's hard to produce? Is do uh-huh. multiple websites that are hard to produce basically uh-huh. say the same thing? Um, and you know, in in the world of easy creation, which is what generative AI allows, um, easy false g- g- creation even. Yeah. Uh, those tools aren't going to work. So even the tools that he's learned to navigate by aren't going to hold.
1: Uh-huh. And then
0: the other thing too, I notice in him, is a kind of naiveness around, um, around who you're talking to when you're talking on the internet. Right. You know. Okay. I'm going to go back. When I was 15. When I was 15, there used to be this old saying: "Go west, young man." <laughs> and what that saying meant was if you, that we had all these laws that if you messed up, you could start over. And the mm. particular phrase, go West, young man, really referred to if you messed up on the East Coast, you could go to the West Coast where nobody knew who you were right. and you could start all over. Right. But, right. Are we, but many of our laws also had this kind of forgiveness to them. You know, mm. we closed mm. juvenile records. We, you know, bankruptcy, you get to start over after so many years. And the list goes on and on, but none of that's true anymore, mm-hmm. right? And none of and and whatever my fifteen-year-old wrote when he was twelve yeah. or thirteen on the internet is yeah. still on the internet, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I guess that would also be in this field of public interest, yeah. Public service technology. These whole new, whole new challenges to pick up.
0: Yeah, but think of it this way. What if we succeed? Think of the world then. We would have our democracy would be restored, our our quality of lives would be restored
1: and we would have all these benefits. Yeah. Um you know, I I I wanted to touch down on the fact that you also write poetry. <laughs> Which, which, my, you? You, you really do. Well, come work, on. You know, come on, come on, it's on the internet, all yes, right? from what 1990 something. About? Okay, well, just as you said, everything has eternal life online, all right. Um, no, but, but I, th- it, it might sound like a non sequitur, but I actually think, you know, one of my questions, again, if I think about the human condition angle on this, is, um, what do we learn about what makes us human in having to grapple with these technologies right mm-hmm. um, and of course we know that um, that chat GPT can write poetry but I would also mm-hmm. say that where poetry comes from in us mm-hmm. and the full range of what it expresses about the human experience is you know very much also embodied and that Embodied human experience is is not present on the internet in its fullness, right? Absolutely. I it, don't know. Is does that? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, we we were talking about some a joint friend of ours earlier, and uh, whenever I I haven't gotten very many emails from her, but whenever I get them, they are stunning in her use of words. Hmm. And ChatGPT will never be able to do that, right? There's something just amazing about uh, the human ability that is not completely captured. And Uh so maybe what we're saying is ChatGPT and all the other things that we do in our lives where I just need to send a note. (laughs) I'm sure she doesn't send every email like that, right? Right, right. But but, And I'm sure there are some emails where she just needs to get something out right away. Um, Yeah that's the maybe those are the things that we leave to chat gpt and these amazing pieces where we reach into our heart and into our souls and try to convert that feeling and emotion into words or into writing or into a drawing will still be there and we'll learn to to distinguish the two
1: yeah yeah right that's i guess that's the muscle we have to Grow. I mean, there's a poem called "Blood Passage." Yes, mm. from 1996 <laughs> online. <laughs> I'm going to delete those as soon. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but you 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 wrote. You say at the bottom that it was written for a family reunion, and yeah. I don't know that it's about you, but clearly this is a generational thing because you say my hands are old and withered, and your hands yeah. would not have been old and withered <laughs> at that point. But there's clearly a gen. And, but anyway, there's a th- reference in the middle of this. Um. Um. I am old and you are young. We span two hundred years. I know the past five scores. You hold five more still. Still, is that a reference to the the two hundred year present idea of Elise Boulding, or is that were you just really counting?
0: No, it was it was really a reference back to my great grandparents.
1: Yeah, I was going to. So that's the what I was doing. Great grandparents, yeah. you truly spanned two hundred yeah. years. Yeah. It was, and again, I feel like go on, go on.
0: No, really, you know, when they mm-hmm. would talk about their parents or oh. their grandparents, I mean, you know, it's it's mind-boggling to go back to, to think about somebody, you know, talking about their parents in the 1880s. I mean, it's yeah. Like,
1: <laughs> and and I guess I just wonder: do we do we start to see this kind of experience and perspective we have in a new light? Um, because of what the technologies take away from us, that they can do better. <laughs> I you mean
0: the—are you—let's flesh it out more, Krista. Are you yeah. saying that the literal—the the fact that everything is so literally preserved, or do, or do you mean—
1: No, I just mean more— Again, having this embodied experience of two hundred years, you can't. Uh, you can write about that, but you can't feel it. all right I mean, yeah, we yeah, we have yes. this in our bodies, and you yeah. you put it. In, you put some words on a page that that express yeah. it.
0: Now, hallucinate as it might, <laughs> it's not likely to bring those connections together. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're after. That mm-hmm. that it's going to hallucinate. The things that are said ninety percent of the time, it's going to say it. It's going right. to hallucinate oh, to connect yeah, so to the one ninety percent to another 90%. Right. Right. But uh-huh. it's, it's the unusual pieces that hold the idea that's mm-hmm. not going to really happen. It might happen once in a while, but it's not going to happen regularly, right? hmm
1: I mean, if you think about the notion of intelligence, I mean, one thing I think, I'm still remembering the days when when in when I was working in a in a big media organization and and the internet came along and there was the new media department and then at <laughs> some point that became a completely ridiculous f- phrase because mm-hmm. the new media was media and all the old media had to had to convert to <laughs> it, <was> it gone. <laughs> you know and so I'm so curious about this this language of artificial intelligence is clunky and it it, it I'm sure it's placeholder now but but intelligence i mean like i do mm-hmm. you know and you you've always been you've been working with intelligence and 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 with computing intelligence i mean how is how does this technology and this kind of interface you have with the technology make you think about the meaning of intelligence
0: yeah, this is really fantastic. So if we were to go back in time to the 1990s and look at artificial intelligence, which I was the stu- a student of <laughs> at yeah. the time, yeah. um, there were two kinds of schools of thought. There was this <laughs> idea of symbolic, th- that that we don't know what computers can do, but here's what we're going to do to make them smarter. We're going to mm-hmm. make a smarter computer by taking something that an intelligent expert can do, finding a way for computers to, to embody that knowledge and then let the computer exhibit that knowledge to others. So it's sort of a curation of knowledge to build a knowledge base and then make this knowledge base useful. And so you can think like one of the best cases back then was blood diseases. It's, it's more detail than you want to know, but <laughs> in the medical community, this was kind of a big deal. You only have a few experts, and now you could have their expertise sort of modeled. And now doctors in the field could get expert advice. Um, and so, so this is kind of the – was the real promise. Then there was this other little ragtag group over on the side, and they were like, yeah, but what about statistics? <laughs> like, what about just having statistical relationships between things? Most of the mm-hmm. time, it's always the same thing. If I if I say fill in the dot dash in the middle of a line, you'll know what word because that's the word. Mm-hmm. If I say good morning, how – you'll say are you <laughs> right okay yeah. right and and that was their whole thing let's just do statistical we don't need mm. all that hard. that's a lot of hard work embodying mm. knowledge extracting it figuring out how you're going to deliver it let's just and so we laughed at them mm. <laughs> we, laughed at the, we laughed at the neural net people, and we said, yeah, that's never going to get anywhere. We can only build one of those models for, you know, we only had so much data. It's it's just not really helpful. Yeah. And now we fast forward to today. It's not so much that the technology from that time has gotten so much better. It's that our data has gotten so, we've gotten so much more data.
1: Right. That's you know, the the well of data is That's best. right. If uh-huh. you if you had all of the internet
0: to learn from, and right. you had a hundred million dollars of computing time, you too could <laughs> right. build those statistical cor- correlation models. So I think that model is will always be with us. It'll be the thing that we'll have to work from, and mm-hmm. we'll, and and sort of one of the things we'll have to do, and that is figure out you know how to take this very imperfect model, and how do we build. how do we augment it in ways to make it more responsible and more perfect? So that's a whole other area of Mm -hmm. work that my students and I will be looking at.
1: Mm. I love thinking about you and your students looking at that. I mean, I also just think, you know, human intelligence is so much more than thinking, right? I mean, there is knowledge intelligence, but there's also the intelligence of love or care or parenting or, you know, you gave this beautiful talk— Thank you, Internet, again for at the Arlington <laughs> Church in Boston, Arlington Street Church, right? Oh my gosh! That's About amazing. your philosophy of giving, right? Like that's <laughs> oh right. It's the, but yeah. that's that's a that's a kind of intelligence, um, that is different from thinking intelligence or civic, yeah. right? You, you know, yeah. you and I both love that language of c- the civic and civic intelligence yeah. is also different from private individual, yeah. Um,
0: and, well, yes. I don't think anyone is going—I mean, maybe there are a few people out there who who might try to claim something like a chat. GBT has intelligence. But from—you know, but if we go back over the arc of time in, this, in the work of artificial intelligence, um, this notion of intelligence is— we the artificial is more bigger than the word intelligence yeah,
1: that's, that's so interesting that's an interesting thing to think about you know yeah. and
0: at some point uh when I saw the transition and statistics was overtaking the directions of AI I actually wrote a paper about what called what is AI <laughs> right oh. is it this real is it this belief that it's really human intelligence that has to be conveyed into computers to be shared broadly or is it something a mathematical ideal or statistical model. <laughs> mm. And and the the paper is really just about how textbooks shifted in what, what they do you told think students. Now?
1: I mean, how would you answer how would you just start to answer that question now what is artificial intelligence?
0: Well, I think now unfortunately our dreams for it decades ago mm-hmm. and the manifestations of it it's now quickly becoming. It, it, once it's in the mainstream as a term, it becomes the thing that's in the mainstream as a term.
1: Okay. Okay. <laughs> right? So it just like is what you see.
0: And unfortunately now it, I think it is, and I think those uh-huh. of us, you know, you know, the the truth is, back in the day, what AI really was was the pursuit of building a human. It was yeah, literally. It was right. no different than. Mm -hmm. artist, you know, in Grecian Ernst where you're just trying to Mm -hmm. represent an image of man or an image of your time, you know, humans have always been, tried to find ways to express their intelligence and to make likenesses of themselves. And in that way, that's really, when I was a graduate student, AI was at the heart of AI, what drove us. But, uh, you know, but today, what is AI? Yeah, yeah, is none of that, right? It's just like you said. It's just a statistical correlation of the internet, <laughs> right? Or a statistical correlation of images. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's got some fine tuning algorithms. I don't want to take away from uh, the great work of a lot of the computer scientists recently. I just don't. I don't want to take that away. But I'm. Yeah. But I'm in at a ten thousand foot picture. This is
1: what it looks like. But I. I still. I think it's really helpful to hear somebody like just define that because I feel like that. That fact is not. It's hard to comp. It's hard for kind of ordinary people out here for us to just see. You know, some some of the things that are actually simple, not simple, but you know, straightforward about it. What it is. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, let me just. I think I want. I think I want to ask. Just you know, following on that. Just as we as we wind down. So let me just ask the question this way. You know, with this life you've led, with this intelligence and knowledge base that is is yours, you know, your engagement with our technologies. um, You know, what do you keep learning? What are you learning now about what it means to be human?
0: Oh, my God. That would definitely uh, be—I take so much hope for tomorrow, you know, I uh, have the luxury of living and working with these twenty-year-olds, who are just amazing. They're just—they're mm. just amazing. And the society that we're passing over to them, I'm, I have to apologize to them on a regular basis. Mm. I'm sorry about this, <laughs> but it is what it is. Yeah. Um, and they're eager, um, and they're open. Their eyes are open wide uh, to see the world as it is. And what they need to and what they're inheriting and what they need to take on. So I, I do have a lot of hope in the future and and I don't think that's something I, I think that's also particularly a human trait. hmm
1: mm.
0: I mean there are many others. Love yeah. and and so forth.
1: Yeah. That the hope that hope is what you possess and that that itself is an expression (laughs) is a manifestation of the thing you're i'm asking you to give some definition to yeah you want more definition (laughs) no no is there anything else you might want to add or anything we didn't talk about or something that rose up in you as we were going well, I mean, I, you know,
0: it's so easy to talk to you. I could talk for hours. <laughs> I'm, I'm cognizant of your time, uh, but you uh, it was it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Oh. It's always so a pleasure to hear you talk too.
1: <laughs> well, this has been—it's been really, actually, really fun, um, and thoughtful. And um, yeah, I'm just thank you so much. Thanks for thanks for everything you're doing which also is just good for people to know about.
0: Thank you.